With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there. And he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Dean is being mobbed as our rule Boudreau and out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Down the pitch. Swung in, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians, third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hello, Tribe fans, and welcome to another episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. I'm your host, team historian, Jeremy Fedor. On this week's episode, we will be traveling back to the 1910 season and the race between Ty Cobb and Nap Lajouet. Now, it wasn't an actual car race or anything, but it does involve an automobile. Sound confusing? Well, let's clear it up. That was my uh, best attempt at sort of a pun fun work in there, so hopefully you, uh, you enjoyed it. But like I said, we are going to the 1910 season, and uh, to give a little context about that, headed into that season... Nap Lajouet seemed to be a new man in his elder years. Uh, I say elder, he was 35, which is uh, roughly about my age. So in baseball world, it's uh, you're old at 35. But however, he had uh, relinquished his managerial job the previous season in 1909. And that was a job that he had held for the better parts of five seasons. However, that position weighed heavily on him, and after that thrilling 1908 pennant chase where the Naps came up a half game short behind Detroit, uh, Lajouet was spent. And in August of 1909, the team really wasn't going anywhere, so um, he just 
had enough and announced that he no longer wished to be a player manager for the Cleveland Ball Club. The Plain Dealer reported on August 18, 1909, that Lajue resigns NAP leadership, is willing to shake responsibility and surrender the reins, will continue with club as a hard worker in the ranks, successor not named. Paper also said that after vainly endeavoring for five years to give Cleveland a pennant-winning baseball club, Napoleon Lajue yesterday tendered his resignation, the same to take effect as soon as his successor can be appointed. Lajue's resignation came unsolicited and as a complete surprise to President Kilfoyle and Vice President Summers, the owners of the Cleveland club. As a result of this unexpected action, they are not prepared at this time to name his successor, but will endeavor to pick out the right man in the near future, as Lajue has expressed the desire to be relieved of his duties of his position as quickly as possible. Lajue's resignation letter was also posted in The Plain Dealer. In it, he said, Gentlemen, I herewith tender my resignation as manager to take effect as soon as you can select someone to take up the duties of the position. I feel that my obligation to you, to the public, and to the players compel me to take this action at the present time. You have given me liberal support as manager for the past five years, and I feel that if anyone can accomplish more with the club than I have been able to do, you deserve to have an opportunity to take advantage. The Cleveland public has been very loyal to me under many trying circumstances. I feel that any criticism directed towards me in the past or at present is not due to any personal feeling against me, but has been and is solely because of conscientious desire to see Cleveland have a winner, and it is natural for them to put the blame on the manager. It has been my desire to manage Cleveland's first pennant winner, but if someone else can do this more quickly than I can, I feel that it would be a mistake for me to allow my personal ambition to stand in the way because I just want what the public wants, a winner, and I know that it is much more important that we all get our desire than I should be manager. Besides, my obligation to yourselves and the public, as above stated, I feel that it is my duty to the other players on the club to give them relief from the abuse and criticism which is being heaped upon them. Just at present, the boys are being subjected to a lot of abuse because of our failure to win, and they are being unjustly accused of not trying and being unwilling to play for me. In my heart, I feel that the players are being wronged. Not a man on the club has ever refused to do anything I have asked of him. My retirement should certainly put a stop to this criticism of the players because it will remove the opportunity of charging them with disloyalty. In conclusion, I wish to pledge myself to the patrons of the club who have always treated me so royally under all circumstances that I shall work just as hard as a player to give them the winner which they so richly deserve. I wish to thank you and the public for the loyal support which has been given to me during the past five years and each and every player on the club for the hard and conscientious work he has done under my management. So again, if you listen to that, it really sounds like a guy that's uh, just kind of had enough and really wants to focus on baseball again. Um, you know, obviously, Knapp was getting older and you know, who knew how many more seasons he had left. Uh, after 1909, obviously Father Time always catches up, so I think he was just a guy that wanted to get back to the basics of being just a ball player and not the dual role of player-manager. 
And you start to see uh, a new Lajeway in uh, spring training. Um, in February 24th, the Plain Dealer reported that player Lajeway is full of ginger. Relieved of responsibility, the ex-manager acts like a real youngster. Big Larry digs up grounders at first base in clever style. He was apparently the youngest member of the nap squad when it took to practice this morning, the first of 1910. Like a boy in his teens, he skipped around first base, digging up grounders and chasing overthrows, cracking jokes every minute either at his own expense or at that of his teammates, who were making rather amusing efforts to play ball after a rest of five months. It was a different Lajeway from the one who had managed the Cleveland club since the spring of 1905. He was no longer the dignified manager, but a carefree player whose aim is to get into shape and deliver the goods as a private in the ranks. And I think that's a good example of what, uh, you know, what was going on with Lajeway and his new uh, kind of approach in his game now that this heavy burden of being manager was, was lifted. So uh, to that, um, let's get back to that part of the, the car. And here I'm joined by a fellow Sabre member and author Rick Hewn, whose book, The Chalmers Race, Ty Cobb, Napoleon Lajeway, and the controversial 1910 batting title that became a national obsession. Um, Rick and I discuss and, and go into more detail about what was this automotive, this car race that uh, the two players were competing for, and just the the backstory to all of it. And one of the first things I I really wanted to know was what's the backstory to this uh, this Chalmers car? What how did this all come about? And here is uh, Rick. Fellow in back of this was a fellow named Hugh Chalmers. Uh, Hugh Chalmers, of course, Chalmers race, but Hugh Chalmers, uh, as a young man, worked for the National Cash Register Company out of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, he was uh, a fast riser in the in the company. He was a marketing. Uh, person and became sort of a marketing guru. Uh, as he grew through the company and uh, be, became a little bit older, uh, got better and better jobs till he was actually uh, approximately the number two man in the national cash register uh, hierarchy. And he, um, uh, he became so popular, he was more popular than the, uh, the head man. And uh, the, the head guy became sort of jealous and decided um, he'd had enough of Hugh Chalmers, so he he, he got rid of him. He, he, he let him go. Uh, people had seen uh, the marketing talents of Chalmers, and so a uh, young group of uh, entrepreneurs from Detroit in the uh, auto industry, which was just coming into its own, it was really an infant industry, approached Chalmers and uh, said that they would be interested in hiring him to come on and they'd give him a, a partnership uh, in their new automobile company. As it turned out, uh, eventually uh, he took that over and became the, uh, it became the Chalmers Motor Company. And that was a, a quick background on the man himself. Uh, one thing to note, I went to uh, grad school at Wright State near Dayton. So if you're from that Dayton area, uh, actually, if you know uh, any of my cash registers, NCR, I mean, they were a big company in Dayton. I believe they ended up moving to Georgia somewhere. But if you're in the Dayton area, you definitely hear a lot about N NCR. And one thing I, I 
found in the Plain Dealer in early 1910. I was trying to do some quick background search on the, the Chalmers, and it mentioned that the Chalmers offering seemed to appeal to the fashionable society folk of New York during a recent car show. So again, these really nice cars, um, and you know, you'll, I'll tweet out pictures later of, of Knapp and Ty both in the car, and we'll get to that a little bit later, but a really nice-looking automobile, and that begs the question of, well, how did this car get put up um, for these ball players. So, again, going back to Rick on this. And uh, along with this, Chalmers was a big baseball fan. So now he's up in Detroit, and he's got this uh, automobile company, and the cars are kind of sporty, and they're nice, and he wants to, to market his automobiles on a national basis. What better way than to marry his interest in baseball with his automobile company? And so he uh, floated an idea to uh, Major League Baseball, which at the time the ruling body was the the National Commission, which was made up of uh, the presidents of the American League, that was Van Johnson, the National League, uh, I think at the time was Thomas Lynch, um, and the chairman was... uh, uh, August Herman from uh, Cincinnati, the Cincinnati Reds uh, controlling owner. And the uh, the group got together and uh, they, he offered an automobile to the person with the top batting average in the major leagues. And there's also some, um, uh, you know, foreshadowing you see in the Plain Dealer too, on a March 20th, 1910, there was a little blurb and it said, Nap Lajoie today received a letter from the Chalmers Auto Company asking him what he thought of the company's offer to give the champion batsman of the league an auto this fall instead of a badge. Great, says Larry. I wish they had given autos in the day when I used to lead the league. I led it four times in batting and I never even got a medal. All I received was a letter from Ben Johnson congratulating me. But I guess I would rather have an auto than a letter. So again, a little, uh, little tongue-in-cheek fun there. Um, again, it's obviously if you were going to ask anyone on the Cleveland team that even had remotely a shot at winning the uh, the batting title, you would ask the guy that's already won it before. Um, however, his previous seasons, you know, didn't indicate any sort of a, I mean, a chance to take out Ty Cobb. But again, crazier things that happened and. As we will discuss, crazier things do happen. In addition, though, there are some curveballs then that are thrown into all this with uh, having a car up for uh, winners of the batting title. And uh, going back to Rick on this. Back in those days, back in, uh, this was in 1910, the... uh, the batting average was uh, far more important than it is today. Today we've, we've got an era uh, where the home run is, is, has become king. Uh, back then, uh, batting average is very, very important. Uh, it was easy to calculate, easy to understand. Uh, it's the way the uh, uh, newspapers uh, uh, would print the batting averages in the newspaper. And it was generally considered that the top um, batting average for any given year in the American National League uh, indicated the uh, top player in the game. And 
the the offer was that he would give a uh, Chalmers, I think it was a 1500 automobile, um, which was his not his top vehicle, but his secondary vehicle still was worth $1,500, which in 1910 was a heck of a, a lot of money to the that ball player in the major leagues, not just not the national or the American, but the overall top uh, batting average uh, in baseball that 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 car would be uh, would be delivered uh, at the end of the season to that that player. So immediately it garnered a lot of interest from the players. Uh, a number of them weighed in and everything, but the the uh, the baseball hierarchy wasn't sure whether they liked the idea. It had never been done before, and they just wondered, you know, is this gonna is this gonna work out? So the uh, they met and finally decided what the heck. Uh, they didn't see that there'd be uh, too many problems with this. And, uh, it, you know, you just can't turn something like this down. So they approved it. And they made some rules. Uh, you had to have a certain amount of uh, times at bat, of course, and things like that. So that's where we, that's where we stood uh, going into the season. But they didn't really take a, a very good look at things, and, and uh, it soon became a, an issue uh, for them. Um, some of the issues that, that they did not anticipate were the uh, issues with scoring and, and also the keeping of statistics. As to the scoring, back in those days, uh, it's quite different than they have it now, but uh, back then, the uh, local news, newspaper reporters uh, played a big part, and each uh, major league city would appoint uh, one of the local reporters to be the official scorer for their team. So, for the, for example, the Cleveland Naps would choose somebody maybe from the the Plain Dealer or one of the local papers. Uh, there were there was no uh, it was all informal. There were no formal rules on scoring, um, and the uh, and that presented a problem in and of itself. There was no training. You just had to be a, a local newspaper reporter. Of course, their loyalties were to the home team in that type of situation, since uh, Major League Baseball was not appointing them, and um, and. The whole idea of this uh, type of scoring was uh, to uh, to come up with an official um, score uh, card or score sheet was fraught with problems when you look at something like uh, a, na- a national uh, batting race, like the, uh, uh, the the automobile race was going to turn into, and that that was because um, there were newspapers in each city that also sent reporters to keep score of the games and report on the games. And back in those days, uh, there were multiple uh, newspapers in every major league city. Cleveland had a number. Uh, St. Louis had a number. Detroit, they all had uh, many more. Today, you're lucky if you've got one major newspaper that's uh, still still working and uh, coming out on a daily basis. Back then, there were a ton of them. So... Um, what that presented uh, was a problem in uh, when when one reporter, the official scores, uh, did his uh, his work. There was someone else with a box score in the same paper the same day, with uh, 
with his, and they may differ. One might uh, have, have an error scored while the other one thought it was uh, was a base hit. Um, so you had different, you had no uniformity um, when when it came to uh, uh, this type of scoring. You could look in, in your own newspaper and see uh, that, uh, say, Ty Cobb had three hits. Uh, you could uh, someone else could look in their newspaper and say, well, he had two hits and reached on an error. So that was an issue uh, in and of itself going in that they hadn't uh, considered the uh, National Commission when they okayed the uh, the automobile race. And in addition to this, and you'll hear more from Rick, is the the trouble for scores too. The plain dealer saw into this problem as well. And on March thirty first, nineteen ten. The paper ran a story. It said, more trouble for the scorers. Giving Automobile the champion batsman to cause many protests. Players have kicked in the past, but they will holler louder now. The giving of an automobile to the champion batsman of the two big leagues is bound to make no end of trouble for the official scorers this year. And no matter how conscientious the scorer, there will be certain players who will accuse him of favoritism. In fact, the scorers are liable to be able to be about as popular with the 300 hitters as the umpire is. There has been considerable ill feeling stirred up in the past on account of alleged partisanship in scoring. But this year, with a valuable prize hung up for the champion, this trouble is sure to be augmented. In fact, the writers will remember, or the writers well remember in 1909 when there was no trophy to be competed for. Certain Cleveland players entertained grouches against the Cleveland scorers, claiming that they were not given the hits to which they were entitled. If they did that when only the glory was the incentive, what will they do when an automobile is the prize? This very question was the subject of an animated discussion at the St. Charles this afternoon. Those taking part being manager McGuire, Nap Lajaway, Bill Bradley, Eddie Joss, Joe Jackson of Detroit, president of the Baseball Writers Association, and the writer. The players agreed that there was liable to be a lot of kicking as a result of the auto being hung up as a prize. But naturally, there wasn't one who would say that it would be a bad thing for the game. To tell the truth, they went so far as to assess the auto company should give out two autos. Again, kind of a, uh, we'll hear later on, remember that. Um, One to the champion of each big league. In so much as conditions are different and the batters face different pitchers and have different umpires and scorers as well as different parks. Uh, secondarily, was the whole idea of how the official score uh, scores were kept. Uh, it was quite different than it is today. They had no computers, of course. Everything was handwritten. Uh, the the uh, official records were kept by the uh, uh, league secretaries. In this case, for example, the American League secretary was a fellow named Robert McCroy, who, by the way, eventually uh, became uh, involved with the Indians as a part owner and a GM um, down the road and was there uh, and involved when Chris Speaker came over uh, for the Naps. Uh, Actually, they were the Indians by then. But back in 1910, they were still the Naps, named after Napoleon Lajaway. And so uh, the, the way he would keep those scores um, uh, and, and, and keep the statistics, uh, it was all done with a, uh, 
what they called a day-by-day sheet. And it was just a handwritten uh, line sheet. Um, and he put in the, um, the individual uh, players, uh, what they did that day, how many times they came to bat, how many hits they got, um, doubles, uh, triples, things like that, uh, errors, all that type of stuff was kept on these sheets. And, uh, and it was all uh, then uh, would be tabulated. Uh, actually, the, uh, in the uh, uh, 1910 in the American League, those official uh, records were only released one time mid-season and then at the end of the season in the National League, uh, not, at, not until the end of the season. So that created additional problems. Uh, with keeping the batting averages uh, and letting people know where where everybody stood, so the the, the players themselves might not be totally uh, sure, um, and uh, certainly the the readership didn't uh, didn't know. So you had another situation there with the statistics themselves in 1910. Uh, it wasn't a perfect system, and it it was. Um, susceptible to error, and uh, as we'll see down the road here, uh, there, that was uh, was to come uh, as time went on. Rick also offers uh, some great context into the game of 1910, um, in so much as you know what he just explained about the scoring and the official scores kind of being different, not something we would think of today. We're so used to. Um, you know, seeing instant instant batting averages, instant numbers changing. And obviously back then, things were uh, obviously more loosey-goosey than they are today. Um, so again, he offers a little more context into the era that Knapp and Ty and a lot of these other guys were, were playing in. Uh, another situation, I think, I think it's important to, to note um, when we're talking about the 1910 batting race is you have to put everything into a context. And that is in 1910 was smack dab in the middle of the dead ball era. Uh, it was a time uh, where uh, games were low scoring. It was a time where the, uh, there were a lot of, uh, uh, bunts, a lot of steals. Uh, the art of bunting, uh, unlike today, was uh, was uh, very important to the game. Your best players usually were also very fine bunters. Um, they also were terrific base runners because there were a, a lot of steals, double steals. You had the hit and run, which was a major part of baseball in 1910. And uh, and few home runs, uh, and many of the home runs that were hit were inside the park variety. So you have to put all this type of uh, into into the context to understand uh, what happened as the season went on. And if you haven't guessed by now who uh, this batting race is going to boil down to, especially with the title of Rick's book. Uh, we did want to mention a few other uh, players of that era that were also, you know, before the season started, possible um, contenders. And as the season went on, uh, kind of contended for the, the Chalmers automobile. Now we know it boils down to uh, Nap Lajouet and Ty Cobb. But here Rick discusses some of the other ballplayers that were of note during this 1910 season. Uh, there were 
um, a, uh, a number of players heading into this that uh, certainly could uh, try to lay claim to the uh, the idea that they might win the uh, overall batting title. Uh, one was Honus Wagner of the Pirates. Uh, he had uh, led the National League in batting uh, seven times uh, by 1910. Uh, he was uh, uh, 36 years old at that time and in his 13th season. So he was probably, you know, uh, coming up towards the end of his career. Um, as it turned out, um, in 1910, he did make a, a somewhat of a run for the, for the uh, batting crown. Um, he finished, uh, though, fifth overall in the National League, uh, fifth in the National League, and ninth overall between the two leagues, because remember, there was only going to be one automobile uh, given. A lot of uh, books that uh, people have written indicated that uh, Chalmers had offered two automobiles at the start of the season, but that was not the case. It was just one. Uh, so uh, Wagner ended up batting 320, but uh, again, it wasn't good enough to uh, to garner an automobile. Uh, another fella, and certainly somebody uh, all the Indians fans are going to be familiar with, uh, Tris Speaker, was very much involved in the batting race, at least early on. Uh, and and uh, in 1910, he batted 340. Uh, he was with the Boston Red Sox at the time. Uh, he was only in his second full season. He was 22 years old. Uh, that uh, 340 batting average uh, uh, was good enough for third in the American League and third overall. So he actually uh, uh, would have gotten the, what would that be, the bronze medal, I guess, if he was uh, in the Olympics on this one. But uh, as we know, he had a 345 batting average, and so he almost uh, had his average uh, there at age 22. Um, a, a kind of a surprise player that kind of came out of nowhere in 1910 to, to, to at least make a showing in the batting race was Fred Snodgrass of the New York Giants. He was in his first full season. Uh, like speaker, he was 22 years old. Uh, he played in 123 games uh, that year. He ended up uh, with a 321 average in 1910, and that was uh, a career high for him because his overall lifetime average was 275. He was a very fine ball player. Um, the uh, 321 average in 1910 uh, placed him fourth in the National League in the standings and batting and eighth overall among the two leagues. Uh, the, uh, one of the overlooked players in the, in the dead ball era, and, uh, I'm not sure your listeners would uh, be that familiar with him, is Sherry McGee. At that time, he was with the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, he was in his uh, sixth full season, still a young man at 25. Uh, he batted uh, uh, a career-high 331 in 1910. And um, that was good enough for first in the National League and fourth overall in the major leagues. He was a 291 lifetime uh, hitter. And uh, when, you, when you talk to the... Uh, folks of dead ball aficionados about who might still uh, belong in, in Cooperstown. Uh, Sherry McGee's name comes up probably more than, than any other player because he, he is not in the Hall of Fame. 
but he certainly um, has a has a claim at least for consideration based on his overall career. And 1910 was a terrific year for him. Uh, so what what it really boiled down to was that um, I thought this would be a race back and forth, back and forth. It became a uh, a race really between two two individuals, and uh, I have a feeling most of your listeners would be able to guess um, who those two players would be. And this is where we are going to leave the podcast for this week. We are going to make this into a two part episode. Uh, we've kind of got the the nuts and bolts, the the beginnings of what was going to unfold during that 1910 season and some of the surprises and uh, the dramatic finish that, uh, you know, still to this day is uh, not as hotly debated as, as other uh, baseball topics, but still something that is a lot of fun to talk about and kind of dive into. So I hope you enjoyed this first part of this two-part episode on the Chalmers race. And again, thanks to Rick Hewn, who joined me and will continue to join me on the, the second episode of this podcast. And thank you again for joining me on another episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. You've been listening to Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive, with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.